I want to begin today by reading a simple, short proverb as we introduce our subject to you. Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 4, Take away the dross from silver, and there shall come forth a vessel for the finer. Take away the dross from the silver, and there shall come forth a vessel for the finer. Our message this morning is entitled, Burning the Dross, Burning the Dross, and is really a collection of thoughts that I have had and meditated on over the past week as I've reflected on everything that has taken place this year, everything that is taking place in the world today, and the opportunity that we have anytime we find affliction to grow in grace because of the afflictions that we are facing. We have seen so much trouble as a country in 2020, and we sometimes isolate ourselves and our mind to what we experience as a country, but the world has seen great trouble this year. We have had a pandemic that is still yet with us that isn't going away anytime soon. We have seen violence in our streets. We have the uncertainties and the animosities and the bitterness and the anger that always comes with a political cycle. If you just look at the country around us, it is a year of many afflictions, and because of that, that's why things such as suffering and repentance and humbling ourselves has been such a part of what I've tried to share with you from the pulpit throughout this year. You know, during the first Sunday that we didn't meet, that we only live-streamed during the shutdown, we began a series on Second Chronicles chapter 7 and the fact that if we find ourselves afflicted, we are to humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways, and we'll find healing in that. We have tried to speak because we live in this world, and though we're in it, we're not of it. We want to be relevant to you and talk about the things that you're experiencing. This is a place of solitude, and it's a place of safety, but it's also a place of edification and training and understanding. And so if we didn't think about the problems of this world, I think that we would be remiss. We have to equip you to understand how to navigate the landmine, the field of landmines that is society at present. As we think about all of the human types of controversy and fussings and fightings and afflictions, you also have so many tropical storms in a year that has destroyed property and devastated portions of our coastline that we ran out of English names to refer them and had to go to the Greek alphabet to begin naming our storms. And on top of that, you have just millions of acres that are burning out west. It really is a time of great suffering in our country today. It's this way in the world. I was looking at the stats for just the pandemic. We tend to think that all of this is just about America, but it's not. And there are other countries that are dealing with this, some right now worse than we are. Some are being more afflicted right now than we are in terms of fatality rate and deaths per day, etc. But as we look at all of these troubles that are around us in the world, there are three basic reactions that we can have 
to the adversity that faces us. And mark my word, we're all thinking about the adversity that we hear about on the news, but I know enough about your personal lives to know that every single one of you has enough adversity, enough trial, enough stress in your life that there are times that you're not thinking about the fatality rate of a virus. You're not thinking about wildfires. You're not thinking about hurricanes. You're thinking about the disease that you're facing. You're thinking about the loss of a loved one or a potential loss of a loved one. You're thinking about maybe a a stroke that you've suffered or a heart attack or a tumor or a family member's cancer. And so whether we're talking about the micro or the macro scale, if we're talking about the individual or we're talking about the nation in general or our church as a body of people, there's enough at any given time to drive us into our rooms, close the door, lock the door, close the blinds, close the curtains, and simply sit there in the middle of our room worrying about what is taking place in the world around us. There are real troubles in the world. Now, there are three reactions that we can have to the troubles that we face. Number one, the troubles that we experience can break you. There are people that you know and that I know who have been broken by the troubles. It has broken them. The troubles that we experience, and I believe we're seeing this to a great degree in America today, can make you bitter. Bitterness is a poison to your soul. It is a murderer of your joy. It will rob you of your enjoyment of your family. It will take away the joy you have in your employment. It will ruin your experience in church. It has ruined pastorates because pastors can get bitter because of the things that they experience. Bitterness is a destroyer. Sometimes when we experience this sort of a year The reaction that we have to the trouble is to become bitter. Other terms that you might use would be callous. And that's a tendency that ministers have. When we go through enough things in our ministry, and if you didn't know, we go through things in our ministry that are not pleasant. You say, what, hospital visits? No, those are easy. I'm talking about when people get mad at each other, when people get mad at me, when people get mad at you, when there's little fires that you have to put out and there are issues that you have to deal with. And on top of that, you have when people fall into sin and attempt to absolutely destroy themselves, absolutely destroy themselves by the sin choices that they're making in their life. There's a lot of discouragement that comes with being a minister of the gospel. And I don't say that to whine. It's simply the case. And anytime I am tempted to complain as a trumpet player, there's a guy that sits beside me in a band And if I'm whining about the set, if I'm whining about the fact that the three-hour gig became five hours and we're adding emergency songs because we need to play longer and it's 1130 at night on a Saturday and I have to get home and I have to be ready for tomorrow and I'm tired and I'm whining, he looks at me and he says, you knew the job was dangerous when you took it. (laughs) And so we knew the job when we took it. And so this isn't whining, it's just simply the fact the tendency that ministers have is to become callous and cynical. And if you talk to a a retired police officer, someone who's worked in law enforcement a long time, my dad will tell you that it causes you to become very cynical, dealing with the worst type of humanity. I'm privileged in that I get to deal with the best type of humanity. A police officer has to deal with the worst type of humanity. His Instagram 
handle is something to the degree of cynical old popo. Cynical old popo. You become cynical and calloused. Trials, as we're experiencing right now, can make us bitter or callous or cynical. It can make us paranoid. It can make us any number of any number of things that relate to bitterness, being burned. Have you ever heard the expression, I, I was burned in that? What do you mean? It means that it hurt and it left me calloused over where the wound was. We can be burned. We can become bitter. Or lastly, the afflictions that we experience can make us stronger. And that's really what I want to talk to you about today that the experience that we have right now, all of the trials, all of the tribulations, whether personally, and I know some of the personal struggles that folks here have had to endure, or if we're talking about our community, our state, our nation, or our world, the struggles that we go through can make us stronger people. We often hear it said that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, and that's not necessarily the case. Because if I become bitter, I'm not stronger, I'm weaker. If it breaks me, if I end up defeated, have you ever seen someone who had a defeated mindset? They're just defeated. If it breaks me, I'm not stronger. But I can grow stronger through the process of being afflicted if my mentality is correct, if my mentality is right. Now, we read for you Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 4. Take away the dross from the silver, there shall come forth a vessel for the finer. Silver is purified much like gold is purified. Precious metals are purified through heating them up, melting them down, and the impurities that were in that metal or on that metal are burned away. And so you have a purer product after the fire has purged it, if you will. Now, there are some terms that we want to give you today, and there are words that we use every day, but as a, a word nerd, if you will, I think you'll be amazed at how some of these everyday words that we use convey this concept to us of purifying silver by way of of fire, purifying silver or gold, that which is precious by way of fire. And as we talk about this today, purifying that which is precious by way of fire, understand that the afflictions that we experience in this world are the fires. Or as Peter would say in 1 Peter, which is one of the last passages that we're going to look at today, 1 Peter chapter 1, the fiery trials that afflict us the fiery trials that afflict us. Now, this word try is one and tried and trial that we're going to use several times today. And I want to turn over to the book of Psalms 66 and verse 10. For thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Now, we use the word try today and we mean to attempt something. Nice try. Or maybe you tried something and it didn't work, and my brother has this really sarcastic personality, and so if someone tries to insult him or bring some false doctrine into a Facebook discussion, he's got this 
gift that he shares, and it's somebody with a cake that says, at least you tried, and he throws the cake in the trash can. At least you tried. He's very sarcastic. You can tell him I said that. At least you tried. We say try to mean attempt. Try here has reference to the purification process of a precious metal. And so when you heat up the silver to burn out the dross, that silver is being tried. Now, what are some other ways that we use the word tried in our modern contemporary English language today? This is modern English, by the way, but in our contemporary English. A person who is suspected of a crime is tried in court. And that process is referred to as a what? A trial. Okay? That's a synonym. It's another use of that same term, tried. Another interesting synonym of the word try is attempt. The word attempt comes from the word tempt, which is a synonym for test, which is a synonym for try. We use these words every day and we don't realize that the very language attempt or test or try many times finds its use in the arena of afflictions that burn away the dross in our lives. I would encourage you to go study the etymology of these particular words and learn where these words came from. This word try, I believe, came from a French word that has meaning to sift, to sift. That's another similar concept. What do you do with wheat to get the chaff out of the wheat? You sift it. You want to get away all of the all of the shell and all of the stalk and everything else that is in the wheat, you sift it, and what do you have? You have a pure product afterwards. The word try comes from a French word meaning to sift. And so these words are all linked. They're all related in our language, and they convey to us this truth that so many times as Americans we don't like to hear. The most popular form of Christianity in America today says that God wants you to be wealthy and happy. Now, God wants you to have joy in Christ, but it's notwithstanding your circumstance. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that I would be a multimillionaire driving around in a Bugatti. You know, any of you know what a Bugatti is? If any of you win the lottery, I would be honored if you would donate a Bugatti to me. I'd be totally happy. If you can't afford what a Ferrari would do. But Christ didn't die on the cross to leave me a Ferrari He died on the cross to deliver me from my sin into a pure world without iniquity in his personal presence. And that is what the gospel is all about. We in America like to think that Christ is a means to an end of the modern American dream of having as much stuff and wealth and ease as we can have. But God many times has called his children to serve him through affliction and adversity, sometimes he gives us affliction and adversity to chasten us or to teach us. That's a biblical thing. I could read for you the passages from the book of Hebrews about the Lord scourging every son whom he receiveth. That's a form of affliction, and it's so we would be what? We would be holy, so that we would be growing in holiness. Thou, O God, hast proved us, synonym for trying, has tried us as silver is tried. 
Now, towards the end of our message today, as we talk about personal sufferings, we'll see, and personal afflictions, we'll see that there are temptations that you and I experience that God is not behind. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And I was going to save that for the last point, but I'm going to give it to you early. Because I want you to understand that God never solicits us to sin. But in this world, there are afflictions that are at least used. Sometimes there are afflictions that are sent to purify us, to teach us, and by virtue of that, to strengthen us. You think about it, the weightlifter who wants to get stronger has to present himself with adversity, with resistance to tear down the muscle so the muscle builds back up stronger. We know this in every area of life, but sometimes we don't realize or think to apply it to our afflictions. We grow stronger in afflictions if our mindset is biblical and correct. Do you want to be a stronger believer? Do you want to be a stronger disciple? Do you want to be a stronger Christian? And I believe we would all say yes. That's why we're here on a beautiful Sunday morning in the middle of a pandemic wearing masks and skipping rows and using three rooms to hold everybody. Praise God, it takes three rooms to hold everybody. You want to be a stronger Christian. The adversity we experience gives us the opportunity to grow if our mentality is correct. And so today's message is as much about growth as it is anything else. It's interesting in Psalm 66, the first half of this psalm deals with what the psalmist refers to as the terrible works of God. Now that ought to make you stop and ask the question, terrible works of God? The word terrible here doesn't mean bad as we think about it if someone hears something they don't want to do they might be inclined to say that's terrible go clean your room that's terrible you've got to take your shots that's terrible take your antibiotic three-year-old that's terrible you got to wake up and go to work tomorrow because it's monday that's terrible (laughs) terrible here the root is terror And it doesn't have reference to something that's just bad. It has reference to something that is terrifying. Now, I want you to understand that our God is a consuming fire. God is terrifying. God is terrifying. There are things that God has done in the world that ought to cause us to stop and tremble in our shoes. There are people that were in the first-hand presence of God, and they fall on their face. Jesus, as they come to arrest him, simply says, I am, and they fall back on the ground. And he's God incarnate. God's works are terrifying. The first half of this psalm deals with the terrifying, if you will, terrible acts of God in the world. The last portion of this psalm deals with our response to that. And right in the middle of both of these thoughts is this idea of being tried by God as silver is tried. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works. 
Through thy greatness, through the greatness of thy power, shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name. Come and see the works of God. He is terrible in his doing toward the children of men. Again, terrifying. Now, we begin to learn specific instances, and this helps us place the application of this psalm to the time after the deliverance from Egypt, because the psalmist apparently has this particular era of time in mind. He turned the sea into dry land. When did he do that? When that Red Sea was parted because God sent a strong wind and they passed over, as it were, on dry ground. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in him. Now, I don't know if you realize it, but that was a time of great affliction for the people of Israel. There was affliction there. He ruleth by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. O oh, bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, which holdeth our soul in life, and suffereth not our feet to be moved. For thou, O God, hast proved us. Thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net. Thou laidest affliction upon our loins. God had given them affliction to teach them. And then... For the remainder of this, beginning in verse 13, you have all of these statements. I will go to the house of the Lord with burnt offerings. Affliction ought to drive us to the house of God. Affliction ought to drive us to the house of God. Whether it's affliction we bring on ourselves, affliction that's common to man, or affliction that God has sent upon us, either to chasten us or to teach us, affliction ought to drive us to God's house. I will go to the house, to thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer unto thee burnt offerings and sacrifices of fatlings and incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. Come and hear all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. More declarations of what the psalmist is going to do. I cried unto him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. He was lifted up. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily, God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. Affliction works in our lives as fire burning away the dross from the silver. Regardless of whether the affliction is something that we bring in ourselves or something that is God sent. By the way, God has sent affliction many times in human history. That, that's, again, a part of this Americanized idea. I don't know if it's prosperity gospel or deism or what the issue is, but you cannot read the Old Testament and say God never sends affliction on people. We, you know, you got floods and pillars of fire and the ground opening up and swallowing people alive. As I was thinking about this this week, and there's so many thoughts, this could be just series, sermon after sermon after sermon. Think about the afflictions of the context of Psalm 66 being them going through on dry ground. They're passing through on dry ground and God is delivering them. What happens to the people who are chasing them? 
They'd been afflicted in all kinds of ways, and all it did was work to harden them. These afflictions sometimes are sent for a reason, and in every affliction we can grow. It's kind of amazing that from this psalm we gather that some of the afflictions that God sent were on one hand for the destruction of of an enemy, and on the other hand, an act of deliverance to his people. Because God is working in the world, and as his ways are, as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways above our ways. I want to look today at two types of trial, or perhaps I should say two contexts of affliction. Number one, when a church is afflicted, when a church is tried, and number two, when we as individuals are tried. And I did good keeping the preface at 28 minutes. So I, I trust we'll have time to look at what we want to share with you today. Number one, we are tried as a church. It is inevitable that a church go through trials. I want to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and begin looking at what Paul said to, wrote to the church at Corinth in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians regarding one of their problems. Now, I don't know if you're aware or not. I imagine that you are. The church at Corinth was an absolute mess. If there were a church among our people today that had as many problems as the church at Corinth had We not only wouldn't want to visit there, but I imagine every preacher shark in the world would have email chains and telephone chains and text chains where they would be talking about this church and talking about these preachers and talking about these deacons. You may not know that that happens, but it does. And I have learned that if I ignore those when they come to me, I get dropped from the next round of them because I don't care what a church three states over is doing. I've got enough to worry about here. Amen. Amen. I don't need to worry about what somebody's doing on the other coast or even in the next city over because I've got enough to worry about here. And there are chains of preachers who have nothing better to do apparently than to talk about other preachers and other churches. I don't do that. I have more important things to worry about, namely you. (laughs) And you are plenty for me to worry about. This church had all sorts of problems. <clears throat> they had loose discipline. There, were, there was a guy here who was committing adultery with his father's wife, his stepmother, and the church there was glorying in it. They enjoyed the controversy. I don't know if you realize this, but people enjoy drama. And if there's any doubt, just get in the comment section of a news story on Facebook or Twitter. People love drama. We are dramatic little creatures. They had turned communion into a drunken feast where the prominent got to go before those that were not as well known. There were people there who were flaunting their liberty and perhaps worst of all, there was a faction of preachers who taught that there was no resurrection of the body. And so when Paul writes to them, he absolutely rebukes them. In 2 Corinthians, he said, I wrote to you and I made you sorry. And I was sorry that you sorrowed, but I'm not sorry that you repented 
Because that repentance led to deliverance. The problem that Paul rebukes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is what we would refer to today as preacher worship. He begins telling them, I speak unto you, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but even as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Now, let me pause here and interject a statement. It's a popular idea among some conservative predestinarian evangelicals today that there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. Let's read this slowly. I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. First of all, these people were babes in Christ. They were not unregenerates. In fact, when he wrote to them introducing this, he says that Jesus Christ shall confirm you unto the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's not writing to unregenerates here. And he tells them, these babes in Christ, that he could not address them as if they were spiritual, but he had to speak to them as if they are carnal. These were carnal Christians. Now, what people say when they, what they mean when they say that is that a person who is a follower of Christ, now, we have a completely different way of understanding all of this, but they will say that a person who is a follower of Christ, if he's really born again, he's not going to be carnal and by that, they mean the way that he was before he was born again. Are we the same way after the new birth as before? No. We are different after the new birth. And so the definition of carnal is important. But you see, there's a giant excluded middle between a new birth with no effect and this idea that if I'm really saved, I'm going to be X, Y, Z and cannot do A, B, C. Giant excluded middle. After the new birth, we have two natures, the nature of the spirit and the nature of the flesh. I am to grow in grace. I am different in a real, personal, vital, incredible way than I was before the new birth. But I can also be carnal in the sense that I act like a fool. Thank you for not amening that. <laughs> I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. You read the book at of 1 Corinthians, and you'll see all of the ways that this particular church was carnal that he could fit in 16 chapters. It's no surprise that this is among his longest writings. The particular carnality that he's addressing at this point, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions are ye not carnal and walk as men? Division in church comes from carnality among church members. Specifically in this case, while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Now, what's the backstory to this? Paul founded this church. 
in the book of Acts. The next man that served this church was a man named Apollos, who was the present pastor of this church. You had people at that church who said, no, I don't like this Apollos guy. He's a newcomer. Yeah, he's eloquent in his speech, but I really don't like him. I like Paul. Paul's my man. Other people were like, I don't like Paul. I like Apollos. He's our current pastor. But then you have other people. You have people who said, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos or Cephas or Christ. You had people in this congregation who they were basically factioning themselves around whichever man was their favorite preacher, and Paul is rebuking that. Now, by the way, the Holy Spirit places men in the position of pastoring churches. Who places men as the pastor of churches? The Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't because I'm me talking to you and I'm here and you're here. Because there's people that watch this live and there are people that watch this through the week. Your favorite preacher ought to be your pastor. Now, why am I saying that? Because we live in a celebrity status culture. There are people, I'm in Facebook groups, and all week, all they can talk about is this celebrity preacher and that celebrity preacher and that celebrity preacher. Who's your favorite celebrity preacher? What are your top three favorite apologists? Who are the three evangelists in the world that you love the most? Let me tell you. God gave churches pastors to lead them and guide them and teach them and train them. If the one you have isn't good enough, then pray for him and he'll probably do better. Please. And as a person who travels, this has been an unusual year. I have gone on two preaching trips. That's it. Usually by this point, I am war slap out. But you come to some churches that are like, we wish our preacher preached like you. Or, I'm so glad you're here. Shame you have to leave. We're really not fed. Let me tell you, don't ever say things like that about your preacher. And some of the things that I've heard said about some of the most faithful men of God that I have ever known, absolutely burn me up. What it is, people like flavor. They, they like a certain, what do you call it, a hitch in the giddy-up? Somebody said that one time, you got a hitch in the giddy-up. I said, I have no idea what you said. You're speaking in tongues, I need an interpreter. Well, they like a certain style of preaching. What matters is if the man is faithfully expositing the word of God and being with you in your moments of affliction and trial, if he's praying with you, if he's meeting with you, if he's teaching you, that's what matters. We get so caught up on the way a guy wears his hair, you know, all the things that don't matter and none of the things that do. If you've got a faithful man of God, he's put there by the Holy Spirit, you ought to be thankful for him and... You ought to pray for him, and believe me, if he's worth his salt, he prays for you every day. They were factioning. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And Paul begins to rebuke this mentality, and he says, For while one saith, I'm of Paul, and another of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos but ministers? Now, when we say minister today, some people, oh, he's a minister, oh, he's a preacher. You know what the word minister means? Servant. You know what the word slave means? Servant. He's a slave of Jesus. Now, that suddenly seems far more humbling 
than a position of celebrity status, doesn't it? They're slaves of Jesus by whom you've believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. Who gave you the preachers? Christ gave you the preachers. I have planted, the church there was planted by Paul. Apollos watered, the church there was watered by Apollos, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God giveth the increase. Now that ought to kick out the feet from under all of us. Neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Preacher, minister, friend, what are you? Not anything, or the synonym, nothing. All the, all the hard work, Lord, don't you know? <laughs> nothing. And we are laborers in the harvest. There is a God of the harvest, the Lord Jesus, and he blesses us with increase. If there is increase, it is because God has blessed, and at the end of the day, I am an unprofitable servant. I've, I've planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. Now, he that planteth and he that watereth are one. There was no division between Paul and Apollos. They're yoke fellows. Paul loves Apollos. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. And I agree with our forefathers that rewards for labor occur in this life and not in the world to come. In the world to come, we are joint heirs with Christ, and what we receive is an inheritance. Inheritance are not earned. An inheritance is not earned. For we are laborers together with God. That's a comforting thought to anyone who's ever preached the gospel. We're laborers with God. He is with us. He enables us. He builds us up. He makes it to work. If God is not with us, nothing I do will be successful, and that's an idol that people have in our day and age, especially preachers, the idol of success. God didn't call us to be successful. He called us to be faithful. But we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. Now, Paul would turn around and say that he is a wise master builder, but ultimately who's building here? God is building as Paul builds, God is enabling Paul, he's strengthening Paul, he's opening doors for Paul, he's closing doors for Paul, he's protecting Paul from affliction and persecutors, he's giving him opportunity to preach, he's giving him liberty to preach. Paul is building, and yet God is building. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, how do we labor? By the grace of God. As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another man buildeth thereon. Apollos. Paul laid the foundation for the church. He planted it. Apollos has built on the foundation. Now, what does this have to do with trials? Hang on. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation of every true church is the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Paul say in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2? He says in verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
Now that doesn't mean the only subject that Paul preached was Christ, but in every subject Paul preached, the center was Christ. Or as we like to say here, no matter what message you're trying to talk about on a Sunday, you start there and you run as quickly as you can to the cross. Jesus is the center of every single message we preach. Whether it be from the Old Testament or the New, if it's a practical matter, it's because of Christ as unto Christ. If it's from the Old Testament, it points to Christ. Salvation is only through Christ. And we serve and we worship only Christ. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both of Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, we preach Christ and Him crucified. The foundation of this church is Christ. I hope and I pray and I trust that the foundation of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church is Christ. We turned 212 years old earlier this month. The oldest Baptist church in the entire state of Alabama founded upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's begin looking at verses 12 through 15. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, that is a list that is written in a diminishing value. Gold, secondarily, silver, third, precious stones. And then wood, hay, and stubble. You have three things that are precious, three things that are common, three things that will last, three things that will not, three things that will be purified by the fires, three things that will be burned to ash by the fires. Paul's meaning here is the foundation is not up for discussion. It's Christ. Whatever we build on that foundation is going to be tried, and if it is good, it will be purified. If it is not, it will be burned up. What we teach from the pulpit is either going to be valuable or simply chaff, fluff. I think a modern metaphor for this would be cotton candy. When I was little and we'd go to a fair, or we'd go to a carnival, or we'd go to the circus... I always wanted cotton candy. Don't you love cotton candy? You take a big bite of it and it disappears in your mouth. It provides no nutritional value. It's gone. And then you're like, where did it go? It turns into the sugar it was taken from and the food coloring the second it hits your tongue. I can preach unto you milk and meat use a dietary metaphor, or I can preach unto you cotton candy. Maybe upgrade that to marshmallows. Maybe upgrade that to cookies and ice cream. That tastes really good, but if that's all you eat, you're not going to be healthy in a variety of ways. 
We want to present a well-balanced diet. To mix metaphors. How many of you are thinking you're mixing metaphors? I know a couple of you probably were. I won't say which two. Don't, don't mix the metaphors. But what we build on the foundation will be tried. Notice this from verse 13. This is the passage that I thought on all week. It took us a few minutes to get here. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. Now, we're tried by fire, but what we do as a church will be revealed by fire. In other words, you might have some wood that's spray-painted with a golden gloss, but the second the fire comes, it's burned up. It looked like gold, but it wasn't gold. Gold's a very unique metal. I'd encourage you to study it sometime in its value, its ability to be shaped, the lack of tarnishing that a, that a piece of gold can endure. It really is an amazing metal, and that's why it's, number one, used throughout human history as the chief form of currency, and number two, why Scripture compares it to itself and the wisdom of God and, as Jesus would say to the church at Laodicea, passage that I read a lot this week that we won't have time to get to today. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. They thought they were rich. They didn't know they were poor. And he tells them, buy of me gold tried in the fire. There's purity that you can have in the Word of God. Get this mentality, not the common Laodicean mentality, which is to say, I'm rich, increased with goods, have need of nothing. You don't know that you're wretched and naked and miserable and Blind and poor. Sounds a lot like America today. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Now I want you to notice the shalls of this verse. Every man's work shall be made manifest. Means it's an inevitability. The day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. It is inescapable that we as a church will be tried by fire. And what Paul had built, what Apollos had built would be tried by fire. And when the afflictions of this life come, it will either burn up what they believe, how they practice, what they do, or it will strengthen them depending on whether or not they find gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. The fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Our church, now that's applied to what he taught, but I want to apply it to us as a body of people. Our church shall be tried. Fires will come to Flint River. Right now, our church is being tried because we're all still here. You say, is there something specific going on? Not that I know of. I do suspect something with the red bucket. I don't know what that's about, but anyway. We will be tried. There will be afflictions. And depending on how we react to them, we'll either be strengthened or we'll be burnt up and purged. 
Now, I want to apply this also to every individual here because we want to look at it from the individual perspective in just a moment, briefly. This church body will be tried by fire, and for me to remain, for you to remain, we have to have the correct mindset and mentality, or we will be burned up and purged. Again, a different metaphor is that of a vineyard and a vine. Branches that bring forth no fruit, what does the husbandman of the vine do in the parable of the vine in John chapter 15? He purges it that it might bring forth more fruit. If I become a dead branch on this vine... You know what the Lord will do? He will purge me from it. Let us all beware that we live in such a way to be the gold, the silver, and the precious stones of Flint River and not wood, hay, or stubble that gets burned up because of the affliction. And that applies to every one of us. Beware. Be cautious. Now, there's another point that I want to give you from this, and we've danced all around it. The same fire that burns up the wood, the hay, and the stubble purifies the gold and the silver. In other words, there aren't two forms of trials or fires, but the same fire that purifies one burns up the other. And individually, my mentality will determine my growth, my strength, my faithfulness to the cause, my reliance on Christ will determine whether or not I am gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. The old saying is, the same heat that melts the wax hardens the steel. An affliction might burn me up and it might strengthen the person standing beside me. I've tried to emphasize it, and I hope you realize the way we respond to that determines our end in the matter. And again, we're speaking of things in this world. This is not talking about an afterlife circumstance. This is here. The what shall declare it? The day, <laughs> every day. Oh, we're tried. These afflictions around us today can either cause us as individuals or as a church body to grow stronger or to be burned up. I am, can I use the word worried? Scripture says be careful for nothing, but it also says the zeal of his house has eaten me up. I'm worried, nearly sick about so many congregations in our country right now. I see so many discouraged pastors online. Praise God Thank you so much for being faithful to come out here and skip rows and use two or three rooms and wear masks so we can abide by state guidelines and safely meet together in a time of pandemic. Praise God for your steadfastness. Thank you. I know pastors that went from 30 to 40 people to a dozen or less. You want to talk about heartbroken men? You want to talk about broken men? That'll break a man's heart. All the momentum, not only put to stop, but you're going backwards. Thank you for being who you are. We can grow stronger, we can be purified, or we can be burned up. And it's up to us. 
by God's grace. The same fire that burns away one purifies the other. Think about this, back to Psalm 66. All of those afflictions before verse 10 had reference to the deliverance out of Egypt. That means that God intended for Israel to be purified and strengthened and grown through that process. Do you think deliverance out of Egypt and all the plagues grew Israel? It it ought to have. Now, we know that they wandered 40 years in the wilderness because of their unbelief and could not enter into God's rest. So we know that they were hard-hearted and stiff-necked. But what did those afflictions do to Pharaoh? It hardened his heart. You see, God didn't, and this is famous biblical language, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart by taking a normal little soft guy and saying, you know, you're just going to be a jerk from now on. I have spoken it. That's not how it worked. How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? By afflicting him and making him submit with the affliction and then letting up. Kind of like the process of heating and cooling metal. You heat it up, you cool it off. You heat it up, you cool it off. And it hardens the metal. It's literally the word that's used with reference to his heart. God applies the fire of affliction and then he lifts it up. Pharaoh's made to submit and then he's let go. He's made to submit and he lets go. And it hardened his heart. The same trial that was meant to grow and educate and inform and strengthen and purify Israel hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he came against them and against God even unto his death. The same trial that softened one hardened another. Verse 15, 14 says, If a man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Burning and suffering loss is very painful, but he himself shall be saved even so as by fire. That's not talking about he gets to go to heaven or is regenerated because of the fires. It's talking about him being improved and bettered as a minister of the gospel because of the fires that have taught him. Every trial, I sincerely believe this, that I have endured as a pastor has prepared me for another trial to come. It's an education that you don't get if you go to a four-year school to get a preaching degree. You don't learn in a classroom how to, how to deal with some of the things that a man deals with as a pastor. There is no way to prepare you in a classroom for what you experience in many lines of work. Those of you that are nurses, those of you that might work in teaching, you can say the same thing about what you do. How about moms? Is there any way that, that you can prepare taking home ec for the things that you're going to experience as a mom? No, no way. I believe that the trials we experience prepare us for future things that we have to go through so we can go through them It strengthens us. It equips us. When I was liberated, about the time that I was liberated, I endured a very, very hard time at the church that I served. And I'll go into it one day, but not today. But I look back on that season and I realize that the adversity that I endured there, it was painful. At times it was heartbreaking. But what it did do is prepare me for things I would experience later. You see, a hotshot young preacher who thinks he's got all the answers, he needs to be knocked down a few notches 
And there's nothing like a little affliction. Maybe people say, we don't think you're so good. We don't think you're so talented. We don't think you're ready. We think you need to just sit down and be quiet. A little bit of that can be a great education to a young man. And that was the case with me. I'll tell you the story one day. The afflictions prepare us. They strengthen us. Now, I wanted to spend some time talking about being tried as individuals. And I think much of what we would have said about that, we said from the book of 1 Corinthians. I want to read for you just a couple of passages. And we'll just read them for you. James says in James 1, referring to the individual. 1 Corinthians 3 is talking about what a pastor teaches and a church body being tried. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now, to be very clear, there are some temptations that are common to man. Further, we read from the latter portions of this passage, as we quoted at the beginning of today's message, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. The word tempt there means to be solicited with sin, the Greek word. In the Old Testament, the word tempt means to test, which is to try. But tempt here means to solicit with sin. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. If I'm solicited with sin, which is one form, one form of trial, I never need to think for a moment that God is soliciting me with sin. God does not solicit us with sin. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Did you know when you are facing temptation, even caused by your lust in your heart to sin, and you endure that temptation, that is a fiery trial? And you grow stronger by resisting the temptation? Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. We grow stronger in our mortification of sin by resisting it when the temptation occurs. Every man's tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. When lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. The trying of your faith worketh patience. Lastly, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. The trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, not the trial, but the faith. You see, the trial is compared to the fire. The faith is compared to the gold. Why is it precious? Because it is born of God. It is begotten of God in your heart, in your soul. It is literally Christ in you, the hope of glory, so that anything that you do by faith, you did through the power of Christ in you. And I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. The trying of your faith. Fiery trials. The trial of your faith, faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth. Now, I thought you said gold doesn't perish. The fire only purifies it in this world, but there's coming a day when God's hot wrath is going to be poured out on this universe and even the gold is burned up. Though it be tried with fire, tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. 
It is my prayer for you that as we endure the trial of 2020, we are more mature, stronger, and more fervently waiting for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our faith might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, in whom though you now see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, that which it looks forward to, even the salvation of your souls. As we close today, this difficult season can grow us, it can shape us, it can strengthen us as individuals, it can strengthen us as a church, and it can model what it means to be a Christian indeed to our families, to our friends, to those that are around us in our own personal lives. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you, Lord, for the strength. Lord, we ask you for the strength. We pray, Father, for wisdom. We pray for grace. We pray for mercy. We thank you for all of that. We know, Lord, that afflictions are inescapable in this world that Adam has destroyed by sin. And we know, Father, that whether it be an affliction that we bring on ourselves, an affliction that is sent to chasten us, afflictions that are common to man, or even the temptations we have because of our sin nature that is purely from us. Lord, we ask that we would be strong. We ask that we would have the, the endurance to stand in those trials and to grow by the heat of the affliction. Lord, we know that gold and silver are purified through the trial, and so we understand that our lives and our walks are purified through affliction. And we confess to you, Father, that that fire is not pleasant, but we realize that it works in us, and it teaches us, and it trains us. It causes us not to rely on ourselves. It causes us to turn from our iniquities. It's something that gets our attention. It staggers us. It shakes us. It jars us. So, Father, as we close out today's worship, we just ask, Lord, that now in our country, with all of the types of afflictions that we're suffering, that our country would repent, that your people would repent, that your churches would be strengthened, that the individuals who make up every body would be strengthened. Forgive us of our sins, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.